Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So the Ratana Sutta, um, this is one of my favorite suttas, and I say that quite often. I think I say it about everyone. Um, and the significance of the sutta is the Buddha's teaching, um, the triple ref refuge or the three jewels, as it's sometimes called. Um, this idea of the triple refuge is often misunderstood and misapplied uh, in modern Buddhism. Uh, most of modern Buddhism presents Siddhartha Gautama, the human Buddha, as something anything other than a human being. And the real problem with, with that is the Buddha always presented himself out as, I'm just like you, and if I can do this, you can too. So when we elevate the Buddha to a salvific type of supernatural being, that alone is a, uh, completely discounts anything else that would follow. Um, and I found in my life that I really can't successfully take any true, any true refuge in something that's supernatural. Um, I tried it and it doesn't work. Um, and then the Buddha teaches here, his teaching that his Dhamma is also a true refuge when it's taught the way that he taught, which is what we're doing here. And then he said the third jewel is a well-informed and well-focused sangha, and we're so fortunate to have that. Uh, so let me get into the sutta. At that time in the city of Vasali, there was widespread famine and, <clears throat> and spreading disease. There were many dead bodies as the conditions overwhelmed the ability to properly dispose of the bodies. There was a, a famine along with a flood as, as local to the Buddha. The local citizens sought out the Buddha's, Buddha's help who was nearby in Rajagaha. The Buddha arrived in Visali a short time later with a large number of monks, including Ananda, just the Buddha's cousins. Just before the Buddha's arrival, torrential rains helped to helped the situation somewhat by cleansing the landscape of rotting corpses and cleaning the air and water. Prior to his presenting this discourse, he instructed his attending monks to walk through the city and do what they could to ease the physical suffering of the citizens and to individually present this teaching. What the significance of just that is of the the monks going into the city and doing what they can to ease the physical pain is a reminder to us that part of Dhamma practice is taking care of our physical needs. It shouldn't be overlooked. And one of the reasons why the Buddha is teaching this is he practiced severe forms of asceticism and every one of them he rejected and called them all painful and ignominious. If I'm using the right word correctly. And so the Buddha knew, knew that these things weren't helpful trying to um, pain yourself into some kind of understanding. I think when any rational human being actually looks at that would realize that that has to be insane that we should necessarily flog ourselves just to reach something 
Um, and again, the Buddha is making a point by what he just said here. At the formal teaching, the Buddha then presented a way to bring true refuge from the stress and suffering of the, of the world and put an end to all self-induced dukkha, the Buddha's words. And he starts out with the, the whole, kind of the whole point of the Dhamma. May all beings assembled here have peace of mind. May all beings assembled listen mindfully to these words. In other words, pay attention. Then he says, may you all radiate goodwill and loving kindness to all who offer help and understanding to you. Gratitude is an important part of the Dhamma when it's applied correctly. Understand this. There is no more precious jewel, no more refuge, no more comfort than the Buddha. So here's the human Buddha sitting in front of you and he's saying, I'm a human being. This is your refuge, meaning you are your own refuge, which he teaches in many other sutras. Beautiful metaphor. As woodland groves in the early heat of summer are crowned with blossoming flowers, so is the, supply, the sublime Dhamma leading to the common peace of Nirvana or Nibbana or awakening, gaining full human maturity. The peerless and excellent awakened one the teacher of true understanding, the teacher of the noble path is the Buddha. And he simply finishes that by saying, the one who has awakened. Again, if I did it, you can do it. The Buddha continues, there is no more precious jewel than the teachings of the Buddha, the Dhamma. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The Buddha, calm and mindful, has experienced the cessation of clinging and desire. The deathless state of nirvana has been attained. So again, we know that the Buddha is not teaching that somehow we awaken to a life that never ends. Remember, he taught that life is dukkha. And that dukkha is characterized by the fact that having a birth is a death sentence. That every human being gets one breath at the beginning and one breath at the end. And what we do in the intervening time is entirely up to us. What the Buddha is referring to as the deathless state of nirvana or an awakened state means you're no longer giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, which the Buddha likened to a living death. And so I can tell you, and most of us can would agree with this, that from my own experience, I was always grasping after a way to live. At one time, I thought that the quickest way that I could get to the bottom of a vodka bottle, and usually a few times a day, was somehow going to teach me how to live. I, I wasn't you know, averse to mixing in other drugs with that thing, but alcohol as well. It didn't work. But being able to establish jhana, concentration, and understanding the refined mindfulness that incorporates the Eightfold Path as a limiting factor in my life, meaning limiting me to just this moment changes everything. And in this moment, there is no stress or suffering. There is no ignorance. There's just human life in this moment. My human life, the Buddhist human life, your human life is nothing special. It's the most ordinary thing in the world, isn't it? human beings living and dying. 
some people attain different levels of maybe material wealth or, or um, social influence or power, but that, that has nothing to do with what it means to be a human being, does it? It's not how much, it's, it's not who, who dies with the biggest amount of gold, the most riches, who wins. We understand that winning according to the Dhamma is waking, waking up and living in this moment, ending the living death of ignorance. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The Buddha, calm and mindful, has experienced the cessation of clinging and desire. Again, he's pointing out to something so basic, but he's achieved this. There's no, he no longer clings, he no longer desires for anything to cling to. He's describing the awakened quality of mind. The deathless state of nirvana has been attained. The Buddha, referring to himself, teaches the noble eightfold path that unfailingly brings concentration, liberation, and freedom. And so he says, there is no more precious jewel than the Buddha's Dhamma. And one of the most, maybe the most incredible thing in my life, um, except probably giving up drinking and drug, drugging. And I don't know why I'm the, apparently the only one alive today, and maybe there's others, I haven't come across them, that figured out what the Buddha was teaching and was able to pierce my own veil of ignorance that always was attaching some salvific, magical, mystical connotations to Buddhism, even though that only left me frustrated and confused, and more frustrated and confused the longer I practiced that. It wasn't until I understood that everything the Buddha taught was in the context of dependent origination and four noble truths. And that's when I finally would begin my true liberation and was able to cut out, cut out my own need for salvation. It, it put me on the path of understanding that as a human being, we just did, so we're gonna do the Dr. Vibhanga Sutta shortly in the jhana review. Uh, in the Dati Vibhanga Sutta, the Buddha teaches that every human being has six properties that qualifies them and describes their own humanity. And that's it. And I can never be, and none of you, no other human being, can be more or less than these six human properties. And when I understood that, and as you're understanding that, you realize that there's no need for me to be saved I can't be any different than I am in this moment. That doesn't mean that in the next moment and the next few years, I may change. Impermanence will intervene in my life and yours. But when I'm living within the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path, any change is leading me towards a deeper understanding of what it means to be a human being, period. Not what it means to be able to bilocate to the far side of Pluto, Pluto or read people's minds or or understand in many of the modern schools that I practice in, one of the ways that you know that you're awakening is you gain the ability to see all of your, your endless past lives and future lives. And everything the Buddha taught was, this is the only life you get. 
he, he never taught reincarnation or anything about a future life. And he always reminded us that this is where our humanity abides. This is where awakening abides. And it, it's only present when we can be present for this moment in an impersonal way. <clears throat> the Buddha continues. There is no more precious jewel than the Sangha. Understanding this brings true liberation and freedom. The virtuous ones who bring the Dhamma, as described earlier, the, the monks, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Now, we, we don't have a, a practice that is characterized by a, a hierarchical um, monks and, and later on in the Buddha's lifetime, very shortly when he started practicing, nuns. We have a Sangha that is very, very similar to the original Sangha. And as there's no monks and nuns, it's each other. And I think we all feel that. I think Zach is probably the, the, uh, the newest member who's been here two or three months. And I think you even understand this, Zach, that, that what we have here, the Buddha, the Sangha, and a well-informed and well-focused Sangha is a true jewel, isn't it? And we, we all come here and deepen our understanding of one thing, what it means to be a human being and to not take anything personal. The virtuous ones who bring the Dhamma, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those with steadfast minds, free of clinging, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those that understand with wisdom the Four Noble Truths, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those that gain true insight, insight into the three marks of existence, and abandon self-delusion, doubt, and indulgence in meaningless rites and rituals. A lot of my modern Buddhist practice was mostly rites and rituals. They are the jewel of the Sangha. Those beyond despair and evil doings, they are the jewel of the Sangha. Those whose understanding arises from the support of the Sangha, a well-informed and well-focused Sangha, who can no longer conceal the truth the truth from themselves due to the Sangha. They are the precious jewel of the Sangha. Those whose karma is extinguished, the future of no concern, with rebirth ending, meaning no longer giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. That's the only type, type of rebirth that the Buddha ever taught and taught us not to consider anything else. With rebirth ending due to the support of the Sangha, this is the precious jewel of the Sangha. That's the end of tonight's sutta. Thank you for listening. Uh, let me go to, to Jane first, even though I know she doesn't like to be the first one called. Hello, Jane. There you are. Hey, John. I'm missing my Zoom buddies, but I know I'm going to see them tomorrow. You're going to see them soon, too, as I turn the camera around. But. Oh, okay. So I'm just, I'm calm right now, and I'm looking forward to spending time with my Sangha friends. So I'll yeah, see you tomorrow. <laughs> see you tomorrow morning. Thanks, James. Does anybody mind being on camera tonight? Your hair is combed and everything. Okay. Uh, here's Tom from the UK. Hello, Tom. 
Hello. Um, yeah, I'm just going to echo Jane's words, really. I'm just happy to be here. Um, I'm excited to be able to dedicate more and more time over the coming days to meditation and to jhana practice and that's all i've got uh, i'll take noble silence that's great if that counts as noble it's like semi-noble silence yes <laughs> almost noble silence yeah uh and there's jeff to just to tom's left hello jeff hello um I, th I think I, I would, there's a lot there. Uh, uh, several thoughts come to mind, but I, I think maybe I would just try to echo how rare and unusual this Sangha is. Um, I can remember as a young man following more intuition than anything and feeling as though I were close to some understandings, but not having any structure in which to, to, to cultivate an understanding. No structure in terms of uh, uh, a developed Dhamma, and most importantly, not a, not a support structure. Um, so I would just uh, echo how important what a what a jewel this saga is. It's uh, it, it is rare indeed and precious. I agree, my friend. In the Anapanasate Sutta, the Buddha begins by um, introducing about twenty-five, I think, uh, arahants, awakened monks, and and he says. This in the Sangha in front of him, the original Sangha, he declared it's very rare in the world, unique. And this was a time when the Buddha was alive. Um, so, you know, again, the, the conditions in the world are just about the same as they were during the Buddha's time. And people that practice this Dhamma are very rare in the world. It doesn't mean that what other people are doing is somehow foolish or wrong or evil or anything like that. It's only foolish in relation to the Buddha's Dhamma as a practitioner. It's foolish to do something else. But this is still rare in the world, isn't it? It certainly is. Deborah, how are you tonight? I'm very tired. <laughs> Thank you for the Sangha. I need to stay in the moment. I'm so tired. So I'm going to sing over time. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being here. Um, right in front of Deborah is Zach. Good evening, Zach. Good evening. Um, yeah, uh, the, all three of the jewels have been quite uh, impactful in the last few months. And I can confidently say everyone here has, has provided insight that has been truly helpful. And uh, yeah, thank you. Looking forward to the next few days and yeah. getting to know everybody a little better. Me too. Thank you, Zach. Here's Rom. You feel that little Johnny Carson bit when I move it I was just remembering 
when I realized that this was a, a rare sangha that I had stumbled on <clears throat> somewhere in the first year, I think just before I'd signed up for the first retreat, I'm not quite sure, but I remember thinking and saying that my my previous sangha as a sangha was um, precious to me, but it didn't offer what this sangha had, had to offer, and it didn't have it didn't have the teaching to see to really true truly take refuge into. And it didn't have a, a human Buddha to, to emulate and to, to, to listen to. Yes, there was somebody there who actually, who actually said he was a Buddha, but the teachings were never to the point where they could be, they could be followed. Yeah. Uh, but my realization that this was this was a true sangha, that this was a a rare thing in the world, and and I have I have looked, you know, just like you, yeah. we've been around the bush a few times. Um, so yeah, to realize that there is actually that these jewels exist, that they are here for. To enjoy and to to actually take take refuge into these three refuges, yeah. uh, it is rare in the world, and we should we should be grateful that we have this opportunity. Yeah. Well said, my friend. That that's that's how I feel about it. Um, I'm just so fortunate to be a part of your song, and I really mean it that way. The, this notion of really taking refuge, refuge is a, uh, it's a place of safety and comfort, isn't it? Uh, and so understanding that a human being did this, understanding that he left very clear instructions on how he did it and how we can do it, and that we've been able to uh, develop a well-informed and well-focused Dhamma we can understand the humanity of all of those triple jewels. There's nothing, they're nothing really special, except that they're the most special and um, important parts of my life. And it's the only thing that worked after many, many years. And I studied, you know, I was fortunate and you know, in my early thirties to my mid to late forties, um, I spent a lot of time chasing all over the, you know, the, uh, and sitting, learning from the most reputable food, modern Buddhist teachers we know. And very, very rarely during that whole time, and it was years and years and years, I barely ever heard the Four Noble Truths or an eight, the Eightfold Path mentioned when dependent origination or what was presented as interdependent, usually. Uh, co-arising is how it was most normally presented, had no relationship at all to what I later would find in the Paticca Samadhi Sutta. 
Um, and there was not, nothing really presented that anybody could take, that I couldn't take refuge in because there really wasn't much substance. There was a lot of wonderful people and very, very sincere teacher. But again, after all that time, I, didn't, I wasn't taught anything that I could apply to my life. There was no structure. It was just, you know, hang out with your friends and meditate once a week or once a month whenever you could get to these different places. And there was really not much instructions beyond that, instruction beyond that. And then I came across you know, my teacher, our teacher, Siddhartha Gautama. And immediately I was able to start practicing. Well, not immediately, it took me a while to still figure out what he, what he really meant. But then I started practicing on my own first and integrating the Eightfold Path. And very quickly, I was starting to make changes in my life. And it wasn't even um, very determined changes. It was think more like, as I continued my practice, my true refuge practice, all the things that were causing difficulty in my life really just fell away. I didn't have to give anything up. It wasn't, it wasn't as, um, giving, giving up ignorance wasn't as difficult for me as giving up alcohol and drugs was. Because at that point in my life, I, I was so frustrated and so confused that I was ready for it. And I think it kind of takes that, that kind of effort for most of us. Most of us don't start looking for any type of so-called spiritual practices because everything is perfect in our life. We're usually looking to change something. And usually it means we don't think that we're adequate or that we need to change something or gain some kind of special knowledge. That was my big interest in, in Eastern religions was I thought that there was some kind of special secret things that I could be taught that would give me special powers over other people. And now I'm so glad that they weren't able to teach that because that would have just led to more confusion and more frustration because now I would have separated myself from humanity, didn't I? Instead of learning, taking refuge, true refuge, understanding safety and comfort in this that changed everything. So again, the, the whole point of this sutta is to take refuge. Um, when I took my vows in a certain uh, Tibetan school over uh, a, a long, intense three-day weekend, one of the prerequisites to the final um, novitiate ordin ordination was to make a, a formal acceptance of taking refuge in the Buddha, his Dhamma, and a well well, it wasn't called a well informed and well focused on the, the question that uh, the uh, teacher, Ken Pokorta Rinpoche was his name, was uh, actually he only spoke Tibetan, but then it was translated as do you take refuge in the Buddha, the Sangha, the, the Dhamma, and the Sangha? And he would bow and I bow and shake my hand congratulations that was beginning and then that was on saturday the next uh, on the following sunday i then took uh, some other vows related to their particular practice and i was giving the white shawl that signified that i was accepted to be i was a, a, a novitiate monk it was a, i was just beginning my practice and 
that would lead to about three years of uh, kind of hanging out, and then you would you, you would be given a, a formal name. Uh, but within two weeks of taking all those vows and going through that and realizing what I had just committed to, to something that I really didn't believe in. I, I, with, within myself, I, in fact, I was kind of down here on the towpath. I, a little formal ritual of disavowing what I had done there because it, it didn't work for me. But understanding this triple refuge is the true place of safety and comfort for me. That is something that uh, is so powerful. And that understanding, again, just to say it, that we're taking refuge in the understanding that a human being awakened, he actually gained full human maturity, that he left a Dhamma that any human being could integrate, and that he had this well-informed and well-focused Sangha as that, that third aspect, that third jewel. And I think we are. Ryan. Well, that's hard to follow. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, it's as I, I didn't know what a song was two years ago, and um, it's just been such a tremendous blessing in my life to, to have all of you and have this practice. Yeah. And the the fact that the Buddha left these for us, as we disentangle from the world, he didn't leave us out in the cold. He left a place for us to go. He left a place for us from sensual pleasure while practicing John to get away from that as well and have something that the mind could skillfully leverage in the same way with the, the refuges. It, it, it's, it's not, we're not leaving anything behind. We're, we've got this wonderful triple refuge to take safety in. So, thank yeah. you. Thank you. Again, well said. We, we're the only thing we're abandoning is a very specific you know specific form of ignorance ignorance of four noble truths and and again i think we've seen that any human being can develop that thank you brian so brian's left is david thank you uh, i guess i just add <coughs> the responsibility that we each take great responsibility to keep it restricted, keep it limited, don't try to modify it, be sincere with your efforts, and don't compare yourselves with others within the Sangha. Just support, and that's the responsibility we all should take to protect what we're developing here. And uh, oftentimes, we talk about why isn't it bigger? And that's the responsibility. Not everyone is up for that responsibility. Yeah. And it's okay for it to be only. Brian and one other person on Mondays. And it's okay that it was only you and Kevin on Thursday. It's yeah. also okay when it's 25 people. 
a refuge that should be protected and you know, again that's the responsibility. So. Again, well said, David. Thank you. Yeah, it, you know, I said earlier that the conditions um, in our world are very similar to what was going on during the Buddhist time. But the big difference, um, and you've heard me mention that book, Stolen Focus, by Johann Hari a few times. And I should say there's a few things in there that I don't agree with, but his, I, his notion of how we've lost our focus because we're glued to our smartphones all the time. My speculation is that it's even more difficult for people because of that constant distraction. And any distraction takes us away from looking at who we are, whether it's drugs and alcohol or um, Twitter or tick 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 bot or whatever that is. Um, <laughs> the latest bot. one. Tick I, bot. What what is it? TikTok. Tick, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, chatbot. Yeah, chatbot. Um, and it's really just astonishing. I mean, they, I just, I mean, I loved reading. I, I, me and my grandmother helped me to, I learned how to read before I got to, to kindergarten. And I still remember, I think there was a teacher in first or second grade that you learned wrong. That I was, you know, I was reading, I read all the Cat in the Hat and Dr. Seuss books by then. <laughs> And I just loved reading through my whole life, even through my addictive years. And I was shocked to, to read the statistics that only about 17% of the people still read books in our country. That's just, that's just astonishing. And I, I think most newspapers are dead because people are getting their news from TikBot or, mm. or FaceBot. Uh, and again, it's it, it, it's related to impermanence. It's related to, to the three defilements, greed and aversion rooted in deluded thinking. But it still astonishes me how few people really want to sit down and read a book. And I guess that why that's why I'm not on any bestseller list yet. But you know that'll change. But we have here we have this. And again, the reason why I, I picked this suit to to do just before our retreat is to just remind us all of really what we're doing and and we're. Those of us that are here, I think, yes, um, are going to understand this on a much deeper way over the next six days of really what it means to take refuge in the notion that a human being just like us awakened, that we can do it because he left his instructions for us. We're going to really get into the Eightfold Path. And we bring with us this wonderful Sangha, uh, well informed and well focused. So, um, does anybody have any questions or comments on? The sutta tonight. Oh, I, I got to do that all over again. Okay. So, no. thanks, David. Um, we'll finish with the Metta Sutta as we always do. So these these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, and what the Buddha's um, describing here is the, the qualities of an awakened human being. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And again, the Buddha's words from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. 
This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will deeds, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance and for noble truth. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. See you. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.